Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's the June the 29th, 2020, uh, 2021. It's, um, uh, it is... Uh, uh, lunchtime on the on the West Coast, later afternoon on the East Coast. Judging from the news, though, at least from the newspaper covers, uh, from the headlines, it might be June 2020. Donald Trump still very much in the headlines. Uh, the Guardian, an uh, Anglo global newspaper, is particularly obsessed with him. We read that he's in financial and political danger as his company faces uh, possible uh, criminal charges. Uh, there's a new Michael Wolf book out. There's always a new Michael Wolf book out, of course, about Donald Trump. Wolf's made a fortune off Donald Trump. Uh, now reporting on Trump's confusion during the Capitol attacks of January this year. Um, another book out on Trump. So many books out on Trump, even if he's no longer in office. This one revealing his contempt for uh, the White House COVID task force. Surprise, surprise. I don't think anyone really is. Uh, and perhaps in the greatest uh, non-Trump headline, which is, of course, bound up in Trump, Jill Biden made the cover of Vogue after Melania Trump was snubbed, the ultimate snub. The American newspapers are leading with the same sort of stuff. Here we have the Post um, with a headline about Trump attorneys and New York prosecutors, someone who's been doing a lot of thinking about Donald Trump, who indeed has a new book out on Trump uh, in June 2021, is the Atlantic columnist Adam Serwer. He has a new book out, The Cruelty is the Point, Essays on Trump's America. Uh, Adam, um, I have to start with this, and, and this is not, uh, excuse the pun, a cruel question. Uh, but do we really need another book on Donald Trump? Uh, this book is about Trump only in the sense that it's about the historical and structural forces that brought him to the fore. It's not really about Trump as an individual person because I, I actually don't think he's super interesting. I, I think that he's fairly shallow as a human being. I think his motivations and uh, beliefs and uh, hungers are actually fairly well explored at this point. What I'm interested in um, is exploring how he got elected in the first place and how the uh, social and ideological forces that got him elected are going to continue to shape our politics now that he's gone. As I said, the book is called The Cruelty is the Point, and it's a series of essays, most of which are written, but it has a new intro and conclusion on, as, as Adam said, Trump's America. It's not about Trump himself. Uh, this was taken um, from, uh, I think it's a 2018 essay in The Atlantic uh, by Adam. Let me quote it. We can hear the, the, I mean, the title of the book. We can hear the spectacle of cruel laughter throughout the Trump era. There were the border patrol agents cracking up at the crying immigrant children separated from their families. And the Trump advisor who delighted white supremacists uh, when he mocked a child with Down syndrome who was separated from her mother. Adam, make sense of this cruelty. Is it 
resentment? Is it anger? Is it pure racism? Is it just hatred of one kind or another? Uh, I think most people think of cruelty as an individual problem, which obviously it is. Uh, all human beings are capable of cruelty. It's unfortunately a part of human nature. Uh, but what I'm focused on in the book is cruelty as a part of politics, specifically the way that it is used to demonize certain groups so that you can justify uh, denying people their basic rights under the Constitution and exclude them from the political process. Um, and unfortunately, this is something that America has been struggling with since the founding, uh, after all, because we were founded on the principle that all men are created equal, but we also inscribed protections for slavery into the Constitution. Um, and, and currently, we have a system that you know, because of gerrymandering, because of Senate malapportionment, because of the Electoral College, uh, tremendously enhances the influence of some of the most conservative elements of the electorate. And that system incentivizes a politics of cruelty because the structure of our party allows uh, one party to hold power, sorry, the structure of our system allows one party to hold power without winning a majority of the votes. So that it, it suddenly becomes more urgent to persuade the group that is at the core of that party that they're on the verge of destruction. And so that anything they do to prevent that destruction is justified, especially if they're lashing out on the groups that they believe are menacing them. And so that's how you end up, not just with sort of individual acts of cruelty with which all human beings are capable of, but a politics of cruelty that centers around demonizing people outside of the, their political coalition or th that they see as outside of their political coalition and trying to exclude them from the political process. Uh, Adam, let me quote some more from, from that Atlantic piece. Uh, Taking joy in that suffering is more human than most of us would like to admit. Um, somewhere on the wide spectrum between adolescent teasing and the smiling white men in the lynching photographs of the Trump supporters whose community is built by rejoicing in the anguish of those they see as unlike them, who have found in their shared cruelty an answer to the loneliness and atomization of modern life. Uh, we had the uh, essayist Carl Hoffman on the show last year, wrote a book called Liar's, po uh, Liar's Circus. Uh, he went out on the road and followed Trump, and the book is um, a narrative of that experience. I think he shares that. Um, is this a, a white working class culture? Is there something interesting? No, I think, I mean, I, I think that there has been, um, uh, Donald Trump is not a, a, a white working class man. Um, and historically, you know, a, a tremendous amount of, uh, I mean, racism as a for force in American life comes from the forces of capital imposing it on below, not on white workers imposing on, on everybody else. That doesn't mean that white workers are immune to racism um, or that they can't participate in it or haven't participated in it. I mean, the aftermath of Reconstruction is a huge tragedy in which, um, you know, Democrats successfully use cruelty to create a community uh, rooted in white supremacy and destroy an emerging alliance between white and black populists in the South. Um, so I, I just I, I don't think that um, it is necessarily a white working class problem at all. Um, I think that uh, class is an element of, of of this issue, but and and race is an element of this issue. But I don't think it is reducible uh, to that. Uh, we had uh, Heather McGee on the show as well, the author of the best-selling Some of Us. I'm sure you know that work. Do you share McGee's position that um, 
that the kind of racism that some white working class people are subjected to is against their interests, that they are being essentially tricked um, to pursue interests which don't benefit them. So I think Heather's thesis that uh, you know, racism prevents us, uh, this idea of like zero sum, uh, um, the idea that, you know, if black people gain, then, then white people lose. I think that's a tremendous problem. And I also, th it, for progressive- A problem, politics, you mean it's wrong or you think she's right and it's a bad situation? I think it's a bad situation. Um, but I'm loath to, uh, I'm loath to describe anybody else's interests for them in the sense that, you know, th these people can conceive of their interests uh, as they like, and 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 as as a result of that, uh, it's not for me to say that they're voting against their interests. What I will say is, I think that you know their interests, as they understand them, is preventing a shared prosperity from from taking place, which is you know what Heather's book is about. Uh, Adam, what's your reading? And 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 you have a lot of historical stuff in your journalism and in the book. What's your reading of nineteenth-century America? Is it simply profoundly flawed by this great crime, well, two great crimes, one against African-Americans uh, and one against indigenous peoples, not just the 19th century, 17th and 18th century as well. Um, or are these footnotes to a narrative, a general narrative of freedom? Uh, they're, they're certainly not footnotes to the to a general narrative of freedom they are the battle for freedom um and you know there is obviously a lot of terrible things that happen in the 19th century the civil war the end of reconstruction but there's also a lot of inspiring stuff there's a lot of people who uh, a lot of american people who are you know trying to figure out how to build a better society and in some cases succeeding and in some cases not succeeding but even when they fail they they lay the groundwork uh for america's uh, embrace of multiracial democracy, um, at least on paper in 1964 and 1965. And I find a lot of that extremely admirable. I don't think everything about American history um, is, you know, fundamentally sad or depressing. I think there's quite a lot to be inspired by, um, you know, particularly in these freedom struggles that uh, uh, Americans of all backgrounds are involved in. We've had so many shows, Adam, about racism in America. I, I, you don't need me to tell you about the experience uh, of racism, both uh, intellectually and as uh, as an African-American in America. We had um, Alex Vitale on the show talking about the racism of police, arguing for the end of policing. We had Heather Washington on the show, her book on medical apartheid, so many other books as well. Um, what's the connection? Is there one between this Intrinsic racism in America, which seems to be worse than any other country or equal to, to, to most other countries in the world, if not worse, and, and the history of American Christianity. You know, I, I would actually push back on that. I think that America has been trying for much longer to create a multiracial democracy than a lot of Western nations. Um, I think if you look at Europe and the way that they're dealing um, with their diversifying societies, they're actually dealing with it, you know, far worse than we are. Um, and, and I think that even when you're, when it, you know, typically uh, in this argument here over how to make, uh, how to create multiracial democracy, the, the issue with Donald Trump is that he broke a, a, a fragile consensus that ha had existed since 1965 about the fact that everyone 
um, you know, everyone is an American and is equally American regardless of their background. And his uh, menacing that is a real problem for multi for democracy in America because it simply does not work unless we're all equally American regardless of of you know where our families came from or what language our ancestors spoke. Uh, but but I don't I don't actually think that America is either intrinsically racist in the sense that that you know there's that it, it, there's no way to ever deal with it or in the sense that um, you know it, it's much worse than other countries. It's a lot easier. You know, if there, it, 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 I mean, there, it, if you have never, if your country has never had to try to create a multiracial democracy, it's easy to look across the uh, across the Atlantic and say, oh, obviously America is a really racist country. Um, but I don't. I think that while we obviously have tremendous problems with racism, it's it's the it's always been the biggest threat to American democracy. I, I would not describe it either as intrinsic or say that it is you know much worse than everywhere else in the world. There are some people on the left, Adam, like Sarah Kenzier. I'm sure again you know her work. It's a bestseller. She's been on the show a couple of times. Hiding in plain sight: the invention of Donald Trump and the erosion of of America. She writes about quite a lot of similar things to you, but she argues that Trump himself is an outgrowth, a, a natural logical outgrowth um, of, of Reagan and the history of the Republican Party over the last 40 years. D do you share Sarah's position? You had a, a New York Times opinion piece um, recently entitled The Cruel Logic of the Republican Party before and after Trump? How far does Trump go back? I mean, I think, as I said earlier, I think Trumpism has its links to, uh, you know, this idea that we've been fighting since the founding. But I mean, for example, you know, the scheme that the Trump administration attempted to implement to manipulate, to manipulate the census in order to enhance the power of white voters at the expense of voters of color, which was, you know, struck down uh, by the Supreme Court on a technicality um, but largely because this scheme uh, was revealed, the political, the Republican strategist who came up with that scheme, he came up with it before Donald Trump was ever elected president. Um, and 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 the Supreme Court struck it down on a technicality, but probably because the that explicit aim was exposed because his daughter gave his hard drives uh, to liberal groups who then publicly revealed this information. So the issue is really, um, you know, this ideology that says you know, the country belongs to this one group of people and the other group of people are, 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 are kind of guests and they don't really deserve an unfettered right to participation in politics is the real problem here. And it can attach itself to any ideology and it has attached itself to the Republican Party in the past two decades because of, you know, their increasing homogeneity. Um, and it, the only way, I mean, and when you look at the history of the Democratic Party, for example, the Democratic Party was the most white supremacist institution in American life for many, many decades. And the reason it changed was not because, you know, everybody, this, the leaders of the Democratic Party suddenly, uh, you know, became wonderful people. It was that the, uh, the Democratic Party became more diverse as a result of the New Deal. Um, and that new coalition of voters, black voters, urban liberals, uh, union members, uh, took control of the party and shaped it and pushed it in a different direction. And so, it, you know, the as long as the Republican Party can maintain power without winning a majority of a vote of, of the votes by engaging in this kind of white identity politics, they're going to do that. Um, and you can sort of see over the past. I mean, if you look back, I mean, Reagan did um, an amnesty. 
Um, his, you know, he was fairly dovish on immigration, especially compared to modern Republicans. I think that. Um, so so yeah, you're disagreeing essentially with Sarah. You don't see. No, this. I think I think it's not that simple. I think that there are elements of Reaganism that are clearly a part of Donald Trump and, and, and clearly, you know, Reagan himself being an ideological ascendant of Barry Goldwater, who opposed the, the, the civil rights and voting rights acts. But I think it's not. I think that you have to allow for the fact that history did not necessarily have to unfold this way, that people made conscious political choices, such as. Um, you know, relying on this kind of white identity politics to hold power and that it's not necessarily like uh, a, a question of history unfolding as fated, if that, if that makes any sense. And I can't say whether that's disagreeing with Sarah or not, because unfortunately I haven't read her book. Um, but I, I, I would say that Trump is an ideological descendant of Reagan in some ways and a divergence in others. Adam, how are you coping in a post-Trump America? You're one of America's most distinguished and influential Essayist, as I said, the, the new book, The Cruelty is the Point, Essays on Trump's America, is a series of essays you had published during the, the, the Trump age. Um, the reason I ask is we had the another essayist, Elisa Gabbett, on the show uh, a few days ago. Her book, The Unreality of Memory, is about her kind of... She's more of a cultural writer than you and doesn't focus so much on politics. But she writes about the the vertiginousness, the vertiginousness of life in America after Trump. She's struggling to get used to it. Uh, what's your personal narrative here? Are you pleased he's gone? Are you feeling a void, a vacuum? Has he really gone? Is he lurking in the background at the back of your mind? I mean, I'm relieved he's gone. I think uh, there was too much of an emphasis on his influence on an individual, which obviously he had uh, very unique, some very unique uh, personality qualities and defects that made him a uh, figure of great focus and attention. Um, I'm relieved he's gone, but I also, f you know, do not think, I mean, as I said, I think that this is a structural issue that goes beyond him, that predates him, and, and that will continue after him. And you can see it continuing, uh, you know, both in the, the, the rash of voting restrictions that have been passed in the states and in laws, you know, targeting vulnerable constituencies, you know, pr trying to prevent uh, trans children from accessing uh, gender affirmation care. I, I, I mean, this is simply, um, it's simply not a question of Donald Trump being, you know, a, a villainous mastermind. It is, it is a question of why did people choose him? Um, and, and what, and, and, and are the reasons that people chose him still there to motivate the Republican party to continue to engage in his kind of politics? And I think the answer to the latter question is obviously yes. Um, but uh, personally, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, you look think, well, Adam, you don't look as, uh, as if you've lost any sleep, you look uh, happy I'm, and contented. I'm, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm very fortunate. Uh, you know, I, uh, um, you know, I, I have a lovely wife and a wonderful daughter and we have some great pets and, you know, we're, we're doing very well. Um, you know, so I'm, I you, know, you I'm, haven't told any of the pets, Donald. No. Um, but, but going but, back in all seriousness, Adam, to the structural issues we had, um, and again, I don't mean to keep on quoting all the people we've had on the show, but so many interesting people with theses, Michael Lind, uh, I don't know if you've read this book, The New Class War. Uh, saving Democracy from the Metropolitan Elite. He's a 
Texas-based writer. Here's an interesting thesis that the crisis in America has been caused by the disappearance of those sort of Tocquevillian mediating institutions, churches and unions, uh, which has taken away public space and a notion of civility from American life. In some ways, I think he's rather like McGee. I'm wondering, in your mind, with this growth of cruelty, whether those Tocquevillian institutions were key in maintaining a degree of civility, of making sure that people don't enjoy other people's suffering. Um, I do. Uh, you know, Michael Lynn is obviously you know more conservative than I am, but I have a great deal of respect for religious institutions and communities, and I think that the role that unions have played in American life is absolutely essential to American democracy, and their diminishment um, has made things worse. I mean, I, I would agree with that part of his thesis. I can't. I haven't read that book, so I can't speak to the rest of it. Um, but I think unions help cultivate the kind of cross-racial and, and sometimes even cross-class solidarity um, because you know different kinds of unions represent different workers that I think is fundamentally necessary to counter the, the power of capital in a healthy society. And what you've seen since unions have been weakened is you know an incredible growth of economic disparity in American life. And, and because our institutions have been unable because uh, our counter-majorian institutions have kept the party in power that is unwilling to redistrib redistribute income to uh, working people. Uh, you know, we end up, I think, very divided along these culture war issues, and that's not to diminish them because they are very real. Um, but we're essentially, I think, much of the the country is fighting for scraps, while a large percentage of the country is living you know, very uh, luxurious and comfortable lives. And, and I think a big part of that is the decline of unions and the growth of corporate power and influence in both parties. You haven't talked about the C word, Adam. Um, is the kind of civil society that you imagine, is it compatible with 21st century capitalism? Uh, we had the labor organizer, Sarah Horowitz, on the show. She has a new book out, Mutualism. And at the, the end of your book, as you just said, you you talk about the need for labor to organize. But in, a, in an early 21st century digitalized economy where the proletariat's replaced by the precariat, um, are fixes possible? Uh, I think they are possible. And I think that one of those fixes is for people to unionize their workplaces. And, you know, co companies like Amazon don't engage in tremendous, and don't spend all this money engaging in, in, in overwhelming anti-union campaigns to prevent their workers from organizing for no reason. They do it because they understand the power that organized workers have to both affect uh, conditions within their working conditions within their company um, and American society outside of their company. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't have any easy solutions to these issues. I think that, you know, to some extent, uh, a more diverse Republican Party is going to be de-radicalized away from trying to uh, uh, limit democracy. But I also think that um, this question of unions is very important. And I think to the extent that people really want to change um, how America currently works, I think that organizing a union is one of the most important things that you can do. McGee talks about that, and she talks about the way in which uh, her, her explanation of why so many uh, white uh, workers voted, for example, against the Amazon unionization is because they uh, 
have been made fearful of, of racism, either explicitly or implicitly. Would you share her position on that? I so Heather actually did reporting and talked to those guys, and I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't want to assume their motives, you know, uh, based on the fact that I have not spoken to him and I have not done that reporting. Um, so I, I would just defer to Heather on that one. One of the uh, one of the the most moving books uh, I've read recently, and we had her on the show. I'm sure again you're familiar with her work, Maria Inahoso. Once I was you, a memoir of love and hate in a torn America. She begins the book wonderfully with a description of a young girl who is lost in an airport and suffering because of the inhumane policy of American immigration. Uh, empathy is all important, and Inahosa, of course, stresses the role of empathy. Um, is, is empathy the fix, the antidote to cruelty? I think that uh, it, in, in, empathy is tremendously important. I think it's a part of being a good person. Um, but I think that it doesn't fix the problem, especially not with the American immigration system, because what we have is a, a, a an immigration detention complex. We have a lot of people whose jobs and whose paychecks uh, and whose investments are tied up in a system, a very harsh system of immigration detention. And ironically, um, there is a belief, there's a mistaken belief that you can solve or you can prevent, uh, you can stem, you know, the, the tide of migration um, by being as brutal as possible. Well, the Trump administration tried that. It didn't work. It didn't stop people from wanting to come here because there's no torture you could devise that would prevent a parent um, from wanting to uh, get a better child, a better life for their child uh, in the United States or wherever. Um, and instead, this, this belief that we can um, deal with immigration with brute force fuels a greater demand with brute, for brute force. Instead of uh, demand for policies that would actually manage the the immigration labor market um, and relieve the pressure on the border, which is what people say they want. But on some level, it's very difficult. You can't make a cruel system less cruel simply by developing empathy. You have to fundamentally change the system. Um, and and right now we have a system that is very much geared towards uh, you know making life for people who try to cross the border as miserable as possible because we believe that's the solution to preventing them from coming, even though it, it won't work by itself and it has never worked. Uh, Adam, as I mentioned, uh, Jill Biden made the cover of Vogue. Uh, uh, Kamala Harris hasn't. Kamala Harris is on the front lines. W what advice would you give Harris in terms of concrete reform of it, of American immigration policy to make it more empathetic, to make it less cruel? I, I think that we are, uh, I, I mean, I think it's not something that the vice president can do on their own. What they need is, is comprehensive reform. Well, but she's been given the responsibility of at least shaping the conversation. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, the the, the only way to make the, the system less cruel is to turn away um, from, from the massive immigration detention system that we have now that was created, you know, during a democratic administration largely, and that has been maintained, you know, since then. Um, but, you know, I'm not sure how much, I mean, I'm sure there are things Harris can do individually to relieve uh, conditions for immigrants who are in a bad situation right now. Um, but in terms of altering the system, that, that, that really is going to take legislation and it's going to take a Republican Party that's willing to come to the table the way it was, you know, during the Bush administration, for example, when Bush won, you know, uh, more than 40 percent of the Latino vote that is willing to consider solutions to the problem other than brute force. 
Um, and it's going to take a Democratic Party that, that that's actually, you know, also willing to take risks on that. I'm not sure anyone, Adam, would disagree with you about Trump being cruel. I think he might even boast about it himself. And American presidents, of course, always rebound from one another. They're always the negation of the negation. Uh, whatever one thinks about Biden, one can't accuse him of being cruel. Uh, he's a generous man. Whether he's an effective man is another issue. How hopeful are you about the Biden administration and and Biden as a human being being an antidote to the cruelty of the Trump regime? You know, I think uh, it's good that it, it's probably good for America's political culture that Biden has made you know his faith and forgiveness um, you know such a part of his public persona. Um, but I think, you know, part of, you know, this, this sort of reckoning with American history that we've been dealing with uh, through the Trump administration really started during the Obama administration. And it started because people were trying to, you know, after Ferguson, people were trying to ask themselves, how do we have a country that is still so divided by race uh, when we also have a black president? And the answer is that the inequalities in the system cannot be fixed by putting a nicer person in charge. Um, even someone who has the best of intentions. Uh, so while, you know, uh, I don't know Biden personally, and I can't speak to his personal human decency, although obviously his expressing that is a big part of his political persona. And I, I think that's probably uh, more good than bad. Um, I think unless the Democrats are willing to take the necessary reforms to alter the system, whether it's admitting new states, whether it's passing federal voting legislation that will prevent disenfranchisement and election subversion, or whether it's you know passing legislation to help spur unionization, I think we're going to end up. Well, I think you know the the incentives for the Republican Party will not have changed between 2020 and 2022 or 2024. Um, you know what they learned in 2020 was that Trumpian politics was actually pretty viable. They did better than they thought. They came close to taking the House. They lost the Senate and the presidency, but they were absolutely not wiped out. And as long as they think that this path is viable for them to win power, they're going to continue on it. Do you think that the message of Black Lives Matter, perhaps even the marketing, have been integrated with the American brand? When people think of America now overseas, they think of Black Lives Matter. There's a big controversy, as I'm sure you know, in Europe now about whether the, the soccer players, the football players in the Euro should be taking mm -hmm. a knee on behalf of uh, uh, Black Lives Matter. Um, is this the new America, Adam, uh, a 21st century America that uh, is, is gone back in the business of, of educating or re-educating the world about injustice? Uh, you know, what I would say that it, I think that to the extent that America can have a positive role abroad uh, on this issue, I think it is not through educating others because we're obviously still learning, but through, you know, through uh, struggling honestly towards a better world. And to the extent that other people see that and want to do the same thing, I think that's good. Um, but I would be careful about, I mean, like we're like, we are in a, in a pretty big backlash to Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, you know, uh, provoked the biggest protest, probably what were the biggest protests in American, civil rights protests in American history. Um, it, it, it inspired a lot of people to um, think about the ways that racism continues to shape American society. Um, but, you know, now people are feeling a little differently. And that's, uh, you know, that's 
pretty much the cycle of American history. There are these great awakenings about race and then there is a backlash and people walk away. But in those moments, uh, you know, great advances towards equality for all are possible. Um, and I think, you know, Black Lives Matter was a very successful movement in terms of uh, inspiring people to think differently about the ways that racism continues to shape lives for millions and millions of Americans. And if that's inspirational abroad, that's good. Um, but I don't think it's a question of, you know, America telling everybody, you know, how to be a good person or fight racism. Well, uh, Adam, so is new collection of essays. The cruelty is the point. Essays on Trump's America um, is very individual, uh, structural, uh, incisive, or, um, and a must read. Uh, Adam, congratulations Thank you for on saying the book. That. Um, Thank what you. else in these strange times where we where Donald Trump hasn't hasn't gone away, where he's lurking in the background, where COVID hasn't hasn't gone away. What else should we be reading in addition to your new book, Adam? Um, well, uh, there's um, a, a great book out by uh, Clint Smith, which is uh, How the Word Has Passed, which is about the the how uh, American memory of, of of history is distorted. Um, I, there's a few books that I read in the process of writing this book that I think are really great. Um, the Worth of the Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson, which is a book mm -hmm. about the Great Migration. Um, there's a book from 2008 that I really love because it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a biography of of the anti-lynching journalist Ida B. Wells, but it's really a portrait of the Black activist community during what um, historians often call the nadir of race relations in the United States. It's called uh, Ida: A Sword Among Lions. It's by the historian Paula Giddings. Um, the History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter, which is a provocative title, but it's a great book that is essentially about the history of the invention of race as an idea. Um, Impossible Subjects by May Nye, which is a wonderful book about the essentially the invention of, of the illegal immigrant. Um, because you know something that people have generally forgotten is that America basically had open borders for Europeans for most of its existence. Um, and that, that our current, uh, political culture around immigration is actually rel relatively recent. So I, I, I would recommend all those books for folks who, um, particularly for folks who like The Cruelty is the Point, and also for anybody who's interested in these subjects. Well, Adam Sower, the author of Cruelty is the Point, thank you so much. Keep Thanks well, keep thinking, enjoy your wife. Thank you. Is it a daughter? And certainly your pets. Yes. And uh, we will have you back on the show again to talk about a post-Trump America. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.